Hi everyone, welcome to the first paddock note show from the Grand Prix of Indonesia. Uh, David and I are at home this weekend, and me after having worked the motocross of nations in France, where I was very surprised to have been sunburnt by this uh, bizarre kind of turn of weather we're having in Europe. Uh, Dave, you're, you're based in the Netherlands, but it's um, very pleasing to say that we have Neil on the ground in Indonesia. Uh, Neil, how's it all going over there? What does Mandalika look like? Uh, it's obviously your second time to the circuit. Are you frying yet? Well, as you know, Ad, uh, I don't take the sun well, so uh, I tend to lurk in the shadows whenever the sun is on. So, you know, I've done my best to avoid flying. Um, the Mandalika is looking well. It was, I, I, I calculated it, it took about 33 hours to get here from door to door. So it was a long old trip yesterday, but I did manage to sleep okay on Wednesday night. Um, yeah, the place from what I've seen looks a bit more, it was definitely a very last minute uh, Grand Prix last year. Lots of things were still being finished or in middle midway through being finished when we got here for last uh, March's GP or last April's GP. Um, and uh, this year it definitely has a, an appearance of being a bit more put together. Um, the track is in decent condition. Um, it looks like it's going to be uh, quite dusty and dirty in P1 tomorrow, sorry, FP1 tomorrow morning. Um, but um, compared to last year and compared to the test that we had at sort of last year, it's going to be, I think, uh, much, much better. Um, so yeah, the, the place is the place is good. The weather's been fantastic. I was speaking to a taxi driver uh, last night when I arrived and he said that it hasn't rained in a long time. Everything looks super scorched, really dry. Um, it's not usual for it to be this dry at this time of year, but um, it looks as though we're having a, a mini dry. And um, I think that is set to continue throughout the weekend. Uh, you've just undermined the credibility of this podcast by saying that you lurk in the shadows when the sun's out. Uh, so, you know, how can we believe anything that you really say after that one? But, um, you know, it's been the kind of a busy day um, on the setup on Thursday, uh, Amanda Lika uh, in Lombok, of course. Uh, and Dave, you know, the big talking point is that finally, finally, we have confirmation of what's going on um, with Mark Marquez and he could talk freely about the subject for the first time. Uh, what was your kind of takeaway from what was, you know, to be honest, a very bizarre press conference where I thought Jorge Martin and Pekka Bagnaya showed enormous restraint in having to sit there suffering lots of questions about Marquez's future. Um, even some, you know, uh, inquiries about their thoughts on the subject when they probably could have said, listen, I don't give a toss, mate. Uh, and, you know, yeah, we, we, we know now a little bit about the thought process and the decisions or the motivations behind Mark's, um, you know, change of direction. Yeah, I mean, the most interesting piece of uh, information that we got from uh, both Paco and Martin, and in fact, uh, uh, also uh, some of the other riders as well, was, oh, good, now we get to see Mark's data. Um, that, to me, was really interesting. It was always going to end up being pretty much a one-man show. You do see this. This is one of the one of the disadvantages of that particular press conference format when you have multiple riders. Uh, once you open the questions to the floor, then you always end up with uh, some people uh, or, you know, there's always one rider, maybe two riders who the the journalists and the media are interested in and the rest, the rest not. So there's always sort of someone sort of uh, sitting there like a uh, forlorn niece at a, uh, at a wedding. <laughs> um, it's, it's, just um, so, yeah, it was like that. The most interesting thing was that for Mark, the process had taken such a long time. Like he only signed the memorandum of, un of understanding this morning. 
Um, so, the, you know, why we didn't have a press release earlier this week was because he hadn't signed anything, you know, so they couldn't send out a press release. Well, he only decided last Tuesday. That's right, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I mean, I think it's one of these things where, uh, it, I mean, it, it's the classic breakup of a relationship where uh, uh, people around it can see this coming for months and months and months. Whereas if you're actually inside the relationship, it, it can come as a bit of a shock when uh, when it suddenly ends because, it, you know, you're just going over things and over things and over things um, and wanted to decide. And like Mark was saying that basically... The first half of the season was just terrible and he didn't want to make a decision. The second half of the season, he was uh, riding differently, taking a different approach, risking less. Um, but he said he wasn't enjoying. He also said one of the options was you know, to actually take a year off out of racing because he simply wasn't enjoying. And I think one of the most interesting things was he said was that he wanted to go to Grassini because of the family atmosphere, you know, to, to, to go there and have no stress. And to me, I think that's one of the signs that he, uh, of how much confidence he has lost in the last few years at Honda, having to take so much risk for so little reward. Some of the other comments from Mark for listeners who didn't see or hear the official press conference, he said he was suffering a lot. He was not enjoying his racing. He said it makes no sense to continue his career if you're in that kind of funk. Uh, he wants to get out of his comfort zone. Like you said, Dave, he chose Grassini for the family, the best bike, and the fact that his brother's there and he recognises it's going to be a big challenge. Um, he knew that when he was injured, he could not take a decision. And he said he was 90% going to stay a Honda rider up until very recently. Uh, he said, you know, that, the team that, was... uh, the, uh, he says that this is what I mean by relationships breaking up. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was like at one point he's like he's 90 percent going to stay. I think he said at Mizana he was 90 percent going to stay. It was obvious. He thought he was 90 percent going to stay. But to everyone else from outside, every time we spoke to him, he had the face of someone who was about to leave. He did not look like a rider who was going to stay. Uh, he also mentioned, you know, the team was there. It's the same team he's had, you know, since he entered the class in 2013. He had a big salary and that was the easiest solution just to stay with HRC. Uh, he also said that Honda need time and to put all the budget on the bike. So you can imagine that perhaps some of that uh, Marquez salary might go towards other resources. So, you know, the others, when they were asked, Becca Bagnaya and Jorge Martin, I mean, they responded pretty much just with platitudes, uh, nothing terribly interesting. In fact, uh, Bagnaya's word was um, interesting. You know, it would be a challenge for Mark getting on the Desmos Adichie and being part of that kind of large rider stable. And, Neil, you know, just from what you saw in the press conference and the general feeling around the news there, is there much we should be surprised about is there, you know, the anticipated level of excitement because it was news that was all over social media. Yeah, I think um, it wasn't a surprise, but it kind of was a surprise. Again, as we spoke about on our, our podcast, whenever it was announced that he was leaving Honda last week, you know, the, the fact that he is uh, accepting, you know, a massive, massive pay cut of probably 15 million euros at least, uh, maybe more, um, and going from, you know, a factory on the team to the fourth Ducati team um, is pretty indicative of, of Mark's belief in Honda's chances to turn things around in the next two or three years. Um, but yeah, I don't think there was a great deal of shock really from from the riders, just a lot of people saying that, um, you know, it's a brave decision um, and that he's pretty much put all his cards on the table. That he's going to be pretty formidable. I mean, I don't think there was one rider that was saying that he's you know, going to take a long time to get up to speed. I think for any 
pretty much every rider that we spoke to today was like, yeah, it'll go well. I think Alexis Fargo said, you know, you're putting the best rider on the grid on the best bike. So what do you think is going to happen? The other interesting thing was, I can't remember if it was, uh, I think it was Paco saying, like at the Valencia test, you know, is he going to be fast? Yeah, he's going to be fastest. He can, he's going to be fastest at the Valencia test because one of the things he's going to have to do is do a time attack, is try to set a fast lap to understand how, how qualifying works. Uh, so one of the first things he's going to do that, what he was implying there, and which is correct as well, uh, the factory Ducati riders and, the, and Pramac, they're going to be testing. Also, they know how to do a fast lap on a Ducati, so they won't throw a set of new tyres uh, at setting a fast lap time. Or, well, this is what they say now, of course, but they might just change their minds when they get there and feel they need to prove a point. But, um, uh, yeah, it, that to me was interesting. They were saying, look, he's obviously going to be fast, but it's also trying – there was a little bit of um, – there was the, the first little taste of a little bit of – uh, of a war of words sort of thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, he'll be fastest, but it's only because he's going to do a time attack and we're not going to. I think it's all gloriously short term. I think we're just five to six months away from contract store, uh, talks happening for 2025. So, you know, how Mark comes in and how he, as Gigi Linga was saying, interrupts the Ducati process in terms of riders looking at each other's data, uh, maybe being slightly coy with information and, you know, that whole competitive rivalry inside the factory. I mean, it's going to be a little bit of a cat amongst the pigeons just to, to grab a cliche. Um, Alex Marquez was one of the riders back in Indonesia, uh, passing a fitness test along with an A. Bastianini. And of course, Luca Marini, um, who didn't seem terribly optimistic about his chances of feeling great on the motorcycle. He's going to try tomorrow. And of course, his uh, VR, Moody VR46 teammate, Marco Bezzecchi, hasn't yet arrived. He'll be flying in also to try the Ducati on Friday morning in Indonesia. But um, a degree of sympathy for Alex Marquez, guys, because uh, he went to a separate team. He was the one that jumped out of the HRC kind of uh, mill first, shall we say. And now he's got his brother against him. I think his comment in the press conference was quite uh, amusing when he said he was expecting a faster teammate for 2024, but not like that. So, um, you know, some thoughts, I think, um, for Alex Marquez. In the other press conference, um, Dorna decided to illustrate the changes with the Pira Mobility Group by having Augusto Fernandez as well as Pedro Acosta. Um, Neil, what was your thoughts on that one? Because I thought Acosta just batted away every single inquiry with um, a lot of very formulaic answers. There was not much in the way of um, kind of illuminating content there. There wasn't, um, you know, last the last GP in, in Japan two weeks ago, you know, Pedro was showing real signs of uh, frustration at the uh, the length of the process um, of confirming where he was going to be uh, this year. But this year, but, but sorry, as you say, Ad, he pretty much just played the company line, told the company line, um, said that, you know, he always believed in KTM. KTM have trusted him and, you know, spent a lot of money to get him where he is today. And, uh, you know, that was always the first option. But it was clear that, that the process as such um, was starting to grate on everyone, on Paul Espargo and Augusto Fernandez and Acosta as well. Um, and uh, and yeah, now they now they have it. So Augusto, Pedro reunited again for 2024, like they were in 2022. And um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fairly formidable. Uh, Augusto said something along the lines of, "I know what a pain in the ass this guy can be from the the very first test of preseason." Uh, referring back to the start of last year when he when Acosta first moved up to Model 2. And, um, 
he was saying, yeah, I fully expect it to be the same again next year. Dave, uh, today was also the first time that Paula Spogarell really spoke about the decision that sees him moving to the sidelines as kind of like a mentor to Acosta as well as Fernandez, a test rider, a replacement rider, and um, just generally a good egg for the benefit of the company. But you'd have to imagine as well as being sweetened by the fact that he's going to be earning his salary perhaps more as well and could possibly also be first in line for a 2025 saddle, particularly if KTM or the KTM group expand their presence on the MotoGP grid for 2025. Um, he seems to be playing the smart game. Yeah, I mean, it was the smart game. And he also, um, you know, he was asked about sort of leaving uh, KTM, but he said, you know, like he 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 likes the peer and mobility group. He liked the atmosphere. Uh, he wanted to be a part of it. Uh, and he did say, look, look, I'm first in line for a, uh, for a seat in 2025 if they get more bikes. Now, A, I don't know if KTM will get more bikes. And B, I don't know if Paul would be the first in line. Um, but uh, yes, it's, uh, I, like I've said this before on the pod, I think this is the best decision for him in the long term. Um, the best decision for KTM as well. I think he's going to be, um, great as a substitute rider and really good as, 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 uh, a brand ambassador for, uh, all of the peer mobility group. Um, and yeah, if you have to choose between Paul and Pedro Acosta, then, you know, uh, uh, Paul is great, but uh, Pedro Acosta has the potential to be much greater. Yeah, Paul was saying that uh, basically experienced all five stages of grief. You know, whenever KTM sat him down to have the conversation, there was denial, anger, then there was some bargaining, then depression and, and just acceptance. And uh, obviously he was quite angry about the situation, um, but eventually came around to it. And, you know, he did, he did say that KTM have to kind of work on this situation where, you know, they can't every year have five riders vying for four seats. It's just not a, it's just not a sustainable model. Um, and he, he didn't really speak out against KTM with the exception of the words that, you know, I told them very specifically, like, you can't keep doing this because there's been a couple of riders in the last couple of years that have, I guess you could say, felt the wrath, thought that they were in a, a sort of a long-term or two-year deal and then being thrown to the side. Um, so, you know, I think KTM would probably be the first to admit that as well. Um, but yeah, Paul, you know, he's a, he's a professional guy. He's been in this game long enough now to understand that this is the way the game works. And um, he said, you know, if this had happened when he was in his mid-20s, then he, there's no way he would have taken it sort of lined on. But at this stage of his career, it was a bit more understanding of where he was at and KTM's point of view. Uh, just to sort of reaffirm some of that sentiment, um, Alessia Spargaro, who said he wasn't going to give an opinion on the subject, but then Judy gave an opinion, said that he was happy. Uh, <laughs> he was happy for Paul as a brother, uh, and you know what it meant for him in terms of you know spending more time at home, having a little bit of that extra security. Uh, but then he also sort of stopped short of making a comment on the professional paddock side of it. So you can imagine what his thoughts are on the handling of the subject. But uh, guys, to be honest, the, the last big question really for the grid for next year is the gap at Honda now. And um, there are a few contenders for that. You know, Miguel Oliveira was basically talking about his uh, his commitment to Aprilia, but then there's also a window. Joan Zarco seemed to be enthusiastic about it. And uh, of course, you know, um, Digir as well is another contender. I mean, out of those three, for example, is there anyone, Neil or David, that we think might be leading the chase based on their words today? 
I mean, listening to him, he, uh, Zarko um, uh, was not quite uh, sort of begging Repsol on, but he was pointing out that the best possible solution is for him to move up. But then he said he also had sympathy with um, uh, with Cechinello, which is, you know, a, a good point. One of the reasons for LCR to sign Jean Zarco is because he's a big name and he can help attract sponsors. And if you put Digia on that bike, it's just not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same uh, a pull or or attraction for sponsors. You know, like Zarco is quite clearly a much better rider. Um, this, I think, is also the objection to Ike Lokawada coming in. But I think it's a massive problem for, for Honda. I really don't know who they're going to put on the bike. Um, I think Maverick Vinales was being asked about it as well, and he was beating around the bush and being difficult. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Alberto Puig was speaking to the Zone, the Spanish broadcaster, and he was saying we're in a really difficult situation because trying to convince someone to come to this project for one year, no one wants to do that because obviously we know that the, the, pretty much everyone's contract is going to be up at the end of 2024. Everyone's going to be jostling. And if they sign a put Zarco there, maybe they try and lure Miguel Oliveira. It's, you know, with a one year deal, it's essentially saying you could be a stopgap and you could be discarded from bigger name uh, in 2005. Um, Oliveira I thought was quite interesting um, today because. Uh, obviously, there's got a lot of rumours this week saying that he was on HRC shopping list uh, in Massimo Rivola. And uh, I think it was Razan Rosali from RNF were saying that, no, he's going to remain with Aprilia. Absolutely no doubt about that. And then Oliveira came out and was like, I, I mean, I would be interested. It would be silly to say that I wouldn't be interested. And um, whenever it was put to him that Rivola and, and Razlan had made those comments, he said, well, they have an option to put me in the factory team for 2025 and 26, but not for 2024. So um, Oliveira was very much um, giving the impression that he would uh, welcome an approach from HRC. Um, and you'd have to say if the rider's available, um, he would be the best option, I think. Um, Oliveira, you know, really good rider, experienced developing a bike with his uh, years at KTM. And, um, you know, on a satellite, year-old Aprilia this year has... Uh, has been a pretty solid top five, top six guy when he's not being taken out of races or riding with uh, a really unfortunate injury. So, yeah, I think he would be a great option for them, the best of, of the, the kind of the riders available. But it would be it would be tough. It would be a lot of a lot of manoeuvring to get that to happen. I think it's uh, you said out about this being uh, like a one year deal. You know, it's difficult to to, to get someone there for for one year. But there's also no guarantee that Juan Mir is going to stay on after 2024 either. He's not exactly looking or sounding like a rider who is um, absolutely delighted to be um, riding a, a Repsol Honda at the moment. Yeah, and on that, someone from Honda did tell me that uh, this week Juan Mir has been the happiest that uh, they've seen him <laughs> all year long. So I guess him knowing that he's now going to be pretty much the, the, the project leader next year. Um, has given him uh, a new a new buzz. Neil, you're right about the dilemma when it comes to just like the one year sort of stopgap solution. But a Honda at a point where they really cannot afford to drop the ball or side some sign somebody that's not going to be contributing significantly to this project. I mean, not only do you have the commercial side of it with lots of sponsors to to satisfy, but also this arguably could be a very critical twelve months in their racing development and their history because. How on earth will they be able to entice somebody, say, like Fabio Quattararo for 25, if there's not already signs of improvement in the next sort of 
12, nine months. Exactly. It's uh, it's going to be very difficult. And I was speaking to uh, Matt Burt earlier, who obviously has been working in this paddock since 1996. And he was saying, when was the last time that the factory Honda team uh, won't have one of the three best riders on the grid? Um, and you have to go back a long way. In fact, since Honda came in as an official force in the 80s, I don't think there's ever been a time when you couldn't say that. So, yeah, it's it's kind of new ground, new terrain for them, because even when they have built painted bikes in years gone by, they've been able to rely on the likes of a Marquez or a Duin or a Stoner or even a Danny Pedrosa to use their unbelievable talent to kind of pull them out of the situation. So... As you say, IJ, it's, um, it's pretty critical, this decision coming up. My first thought was maybe 2004, like the first year after Valentino Rossi left. But then, you know, Repsol Honda also had the might to be able to go and sign Max Biaggi then. So it's not, uh, you know, like you say, they, they've always either had the cash or the prestige or the, the sheer ability to go out and grab whoever they want. So it's a... It's a really, really bizarre situation in MotoGP at the moment, and uh, that will be probably the last big, fascinating jigsaw piece to fall into place in the next coming races. As we know, they're going to be pretty intense. Anyway, Neil, it's great to see you. Um, take care of all the heat. Keep do well, keep hydrated. Don't crash that little scooter on the way back to the hotel. And um, you know, we we'll hope to chat with you tomorrow after the first day of action at Mandalika. Dave, stay nice and cool in the Netherlands and um, we'll also jump on another call tomorrow when we know what's going on and what we've heard and some more news and views.